0: Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we talk about why murdering people you don't like is wrong. But first, we talk a bit about the Fucking Cancelled tour we just did on the West Coast. Bonjour, hi, bonjour,
1: hi, toute la journée bonjour, hi, bonjour, hi, bonjour, Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. So it's been a minute. We were trying to put out, you know, two episodes a month, but then we got kind of swept away there for a little bit. Listen,
0: we got swept away. <laughs> it
1: happens. Um we're gonna talk about what we were doing while we were swept away, but before we jump into that. I just wanted to do a special shout out to fan of the pod, Eric, who actually mailed us These fucking microphones that we're speaking into right now.
0: Listen how nice this sounds.
1: Um, Hopefully it sounds nice. (laughs) We are extremely technologically not with it. And um, we do our best as independent podcasters to give you the best quality that we're capable of. But obviously we don't really fucking know what we're doing. And Eric, like quite a while ago now, like more, more than six months ago... Um, like, shipped us, like, a bunch of fucking tech.
0: This poor guy is, like, a, pan, a fan of the pod, and he's just like, I cannot fucking listen to this sound quality anymore.
1: Because um, we had, like, a Yeti Nano, whatever. Yeah. and
0: We were just, like, huddled over, like, one, one like, mic. $60 mic. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so, anyway, he was so generous to send us new mics, and we were intimidated by the technology and literally, like, had it sitting in a box for, like, six months. Um, but then, shout out to our friend Xander, who... <laughs> Came over and helped us understand how to set up the mics. So now we have our own microphones. Yeah. And so I hope the quality is better. And thank you so much to Eric for making that happen. Yeah, man. So let's get into a little bit about what we were doing when we were swept away. What were we doing, Jay?
0: Um, we went on tour to America.
1: Yeah. We actually kept meaning to, like, say something about the tour on the podcast, but then we were too busy planning the tour to actually <laughs> put I episode. think we might
0: have mentioned it. I think
1: we might have mentioned it in, the, in, like, the, in the interview with Alexia, but we wanted to say more. But basically, you know, being independent podcasters is, like, way more work than you would think.
0: It's really a lot of work.
1: And uh, organizing a tour independently, especially when you're fucking canceled, is literally insane.
0: Yeah. But we did it, though. Yeah. Um, with a lot of help from like countless Americans who really came through for us. Who really came
1: through, yeah. It took a lot of planning because in general, you know, not having a manager, just trying to like figure out where we can do stuff is hard on its own. But being canceled and being controversial makes it even harder. So, because obviously there's tons of people who would not work with us if we asked them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we really want to thank the many, many fans and friends we made along the way who really came through and made that tour happen. We did 12 stops across America. Um, I'm nodding. Yeah. Detroit, (laughs) Chicago, St. Louis, Tulsa, Phoenix, Tucson, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and then Vancouver, Canada. Yeah. So that was a lot. We did it in a month. While driving around with our little dog, Clover. Yeah. And we met tons and tons of people. Uh, We had amazing conversations. We got to collab with like a lot of really cool people.
0: We also met the cactuses. Yes. Which was a whole experience. Yes. I don't know if you guys know this. In Arizona. In Arizona, there's these cactuses um, that are like the size of fucking like telephone poles. They're insane. And they're also all like hundreds of years old. Yeah. Yeah. And they're gods.
1: Yes, they are gods. They
0: live on hillsides in the desert. It's like a
1: forest. It's like an old growth forest, but cactuses.
0: Yeah. And they stare at you. Yeah. When you walk by.
1: And apparently they only get their arms when they're more than 100 years old.
0: Yeah. So if you see those like iconic cactuses that are like, you know, in like old like Western movies and shit, there's like those big tall cactuses with those arms that come out. If they have those arms, it's because they're over 100 years old.
1: Yeah. It's fucking crazy. What the fuck? So that was insane. That was really cool. That was nuts. Um... Yeah, so are there any highlights of the tour you'd like to talk about? The sea lions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We saw a lot of really cool a lot of really cool nature and a lot of really cool landscapes. Um, but we about ate
0: a lot of tacos. Yeah, but about really the tour ones. itself, about the events. Right right, 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 right. Um yeah, I think well there's there was so much. There was so much. I was like, I was really honored to be able to work with the harm reduction people Mm, in St. St. Louis Louis. who are doing like a crazy job because that shit is like illegal. Mm -hmm. It's in uh, Missouri. Yeah. Um, What's
1: it called again? Do you remember?
0: It's uh, escaping me.
1: The Mo Network. Does that sound true? Yeah, Mo Network. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. Like
0: Mo as in like Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they'll, like, mail naloxone to people because yeah. you can't fucking buy it. There. Yeah, I guess
1: in America they call it Narcan.
0: Narcan, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah it was really cool to be able to uh, work with them and um, and see what they were up to. And honestly, like, all the events were amazing. Um, shout out to the fucking uh, Humanist Society of Greater Phoenix, Yeah, too. that was
1: really cool. That one stuck out for me, too.
0: Yeah, it was It was fun, you know? Like, they, they basically, like... They're kind of like a church that just does what churches do except that they're not religious um and so they have this like big hall where they have like speakers on sundays to talk about ideas and stuff and they you know they do like charity stuff and they have like a community fridge and like that kind of shit um but just without like the religion part Mm -hmm. um and yeah they had just like heard of us and they thought our shit was interesting and they asked us to do like a zoom interview and we're like we're actually gonna be like literally in phoenix like on the well in arizona around the time that you're that you're, uh, suggesting. And yeah. so we just went there and, um, talked to them. It was like really,
1: it was really cool. It was cool. Yeah. Most of the people were like older, like kind of like upwards of, well, there's a lot of people upwards of 60 mm-hmm. in the room, which is really cool because there was also like a bunch of millennial queers who were there who were like, you know, fans of the pod. And I love having that intergenerational mixing and mingling.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, like, all of our events were very different, one from the other, um, which ended up meaning that we met, like, a huge variety of different kinds of people, yeah. which was really, really cool. Um, and yeah. we did events in, like, the funniest places, too. We did one in, like, a yoga studio. Yeah. Um, we did, like, one in, like, a church. We yeah. did, like, some in bars. We did like, one
1: in a punk house, yeah. Buckingham Palace.
0: Yeah, a punk house in Tulsa, which was awesome, too, actually. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. Um, our boy, Britton, did a, uh, a whole talk about, like, the the history of socialist organizing in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. which was absolutely fascinating, honestly. Yeah. Um, I think we uh, we might get Britain on the pod to talk about that yeah. at some point. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of people we met on the tour who we are going to see if they want to come on the pod. Yeah. Um, we met tons of canceled people. We got to hear lots of canceled people's stories. Um, we met lots of leftists and organizers and people doing really cool shit in different cities. Did you
0: have a favorite one?
1: I don't know. Like... I did really like Phoenix. I thought that was like a really cool thing, um, the intergenerational mm-hmm. aspect of it. I really liked Tulsa for the punk house. I really liked Chicago. Um, we did that oh, one. Chicago was nice in, too. Yeah, that was cool. What's the name of the theater again? <sighs> I'm so Sorry. These we things. have Tour Brain. Yeah. Um, but it's like a really cool sci fi theater mm-hmm. in, um, in Chicago. Um, and we did. Yeah, we had Dr. Christine Marie with us, and just the reception was really good, and mm-hmm. it was really well attended, and mm-hmm. the vibes were really good. Um, yeah, and Portland was amazing, the, yeah. the event, anyway, Yeah, um, was amazing. Uh, we worked with uh, Roger Pete. And baby Montoya from Portland. And then we had Kira Adrian Gray, who we interviewed on the pod, who came down from Vancouver. Yeah. That was really cool. Um, that was in a
0: beautiful space, too. Yeah. The yeah. Tabor space in, yeah. in Portland is like this beautiful church.
1: Yeah. But overall, I think my main takeaway from the tour is just that, like, you know, when we first started doing this work, we never would have dreamed in our wildest dreams that what we just did could have been possible, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Um, given that, you know, this type of conversation is so controversial and people like actively work to try to silence us from talking about this, it was fucking cool to see so many people come out. Like all our events were super super well attended. Mm-hmm. Um and really like packed and it was cool to like be physically in the same space with people willing to have these conversations. It was cool to like see people mixing and mingling and like introducing themselves to each other and like you know, hopefully that can plant some seeds for like a left community or scene in different cities that is not based in cancel culture bullshit. That's kind of exciting.
0: It's so important and... Cool to do all this stuff in person. Like yeah. it really is like such a different kind of vibe when you can like look people in the eyes and also like yeah, like giving people a space to talk about like some of the shit that they've experienced yes. is like really important to you. It was like really cool to see people light up, you know?
1: Yeah, to see people who have been like so thoroughly socially ostracized and traumatized by this stuff come into a space where like they know that like everybody there has a baseline of like compassion and respect and, like, welcome for them is, like, a really transformative experience. Yeah. It was really fucking cool to do that. And, you know, obviously doing this, we were, like, super, like, who knows what's going to happen because, like, it was kind of unprecedented. Like, we have never done anything at this scale before. Um, we didn't really know what to expect. And definitely we were a bit concerned um, that there might be some backlash or haterism um and you know there was a bit of haterism on the internet prior to the tour some some people sent us some stuff that was being said about us on twitter i honestly think that people that just like that i know or like people around us are just like literally on twitter searching our names or something <laughs> it's like i don't know how you're seeing this because <laughs> you're definitely not following these people but yeah people sent it to us and it's like yeah, people were talking shit um, in a couple cities um, being like not in our city or whatever, like trying to be like, you guys are not coming to our city. Yeah. So we were worried a little bit because we were like, oh, like are people going to, you know, disrupt the events or start yelling or doing something like that? And we were prepared like as far as, much, as far as you can be, you yeah, know, yeah. to like try to peacefully de-escalate if such a thing were to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing like that did happen. Mm-hmm. All of our events were completely uninterrupted yeah um we were able to do them we didn't have any haters show up in person um and like they were super well attended and people had a really good time and it was really great yeah
0: um however (laughs) there was one, one with one exception there was one incident yeah but uh
1: yeah so in Portland, which honestly, Portland was our most um, attended event. We yeah. sold more tickets in Portland than anywhere else, which doesn't fucking surprise me because Portland is a fucking council culture capital. What's so in our in our online store, fucking cancel like mm-hmm. when we launched the store, mm-hmm. um, we created these discount codes. For like the most impacted, which is like, I don't know, 10% off or something. Yeah. Um, so the discount code still works. So if you are in Portland and you want 10% off, you can just use the code Portland to yeah. to get a discount. Yeah, we'll send you stuff for cheaper. Yeah. But um, so we knew that Portland was like, you know, literally going into the heart of the beast. And Portland was one of the places where people were talking a lot of shit on the internet. San Francisco people were talking shit too. Mm. Um, but Portland pretty intensely. And... Um, they, we had not released the venues, like, on the flyers. We were, like, releasing the venue address to, like, people who bought tickets just as, like, a precaution to try to decrease the haterism chances.
0: Yeah. For all the events except Vancouver, I think.
1: Yeah. yeah. And basically, we made that decision by, like, you know, just on a case-by-case basis by talking to the organizers in the venue and sort of thinking about what makes sense depending on the situation. Right. Um, but... Yeah, cuz Phoenix we announced the venue too. Oh,
0: that's true. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um but anyway, so people somebody bought a ticket, some hater bought a ticket and like leaked the venue um onto the internet and like put the phone number for Tabor Space and was like call Tabor Space and like you know, demand that the event is not going to happen. Yeah. It seems like nobody called because like... <laughs> because they're like afraid of... Millennials are afraid of the telephone. Yeah. Um,
0: but so the Taboor Space guy was like, yeah, some people were on Facebook saying like weird things.
1: Yeah. Um, they like tagged the Taboor Space people and they were actually really cool about it. They were like, we are politically neutral and we've checked out your stuff and it seems fine.
0: Yeah, they were, they were solid.
1: Um, but um, yeah, so at the beginning of the event... Like, before we arrived, some people ran in and, like, sprayed the pews. It was, like, in a church. So some people ran in and sprayed the pews with some some skunk-smelling chemicals. Yeah. But it was very minor. Like, it didn't really smell that bad. But yeah, the, it
0: kind of just smelled like tires a little and bit. And the,
1: the guy who ran the venue was like, what the fuck? And yeah. was, like, you know, burning incense and stuff to try to make it smell better.
0: Yeah. And, like... I don't know. I just want to say to you that, like, they had had, like, a couple people in, like, like, cleaning up a bit before we came, you know? Yeah. Um. And, like, yeah. So, I don't know. There was just these kind of, like, elderly, like, church ladies. Totally. Like, scrubbing pews with, like, a sponge or whatever because some fucking, like, brats decided to totally. come in and, like, spray them with chemicals. It's like, really fucking crazy. And, like,
1: man. Tower Space is, like, a community space, you know? They, like hold all sorts of different events and they are, they, you know, they just had one staff person who was supposed to be there during our event. Mm-hmm. And it was a woman and she didn't feel safe staying because of that, you yeah. know, and she like left, but fortunately like the guy who we were talking to, he decided to stay anyway, so we could still have our event, which mm-hmm. was really nice of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like cool, nice job, like yeah. frightening, like, like frightening an old lady. Like. Yeah. Um, but then after the event, so the event went really well, it was really cool. went well. Um, Met lots of people had a great time. And then we went back to the car to find that they had um slashed my tires and poured liquid shit all over the um windshield and like into the air vents. And I will say, like, I literally knew because it was fucking Portland that they were probably gonna try to fuck with my car. So, like prior to the event, like we drove the car like blocks away from the venue. So that hopefully Like, as a deterrent. Basically, we were like, they'd have to be pretty fucking psycho to be, like, literally looking for my car through the streets. Yeah. However.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Of course. Obviously, they did.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah. And people are like, how do they know it was your car? Well, the reason is is because if you stalk someone, (laughs) it's pretty easy to find out information about them. And I'm, like, super online. So, I'm sure they just went through my Instagram and, like, looked for any photo with, like, my car in the background, which you could easily find. And then they looked for Quebec plates. Like, I'm sure that's what they did. Yeah. And then they found my car, slashed my tires, and poured shit on my car. Which they were like carrying around a bottle of like,
0: like liquid poop
1: shit for some reason. Um, anyway, that sucked. And it's kind of like we're gonna talk a little bit about this in the episode today. It's kind of topical for the episode today about what leads people to think that pouring shit on the windshield of, like, some socialist podcaster from Canada is, like, activism, you know? Mm -hmm. It's, like, absolutely bonkers and out of touch with reality. But, um, yeah, it was a weird thing to do. And um, fortunately, you know, we have friends in Portland who are super, super helpful who, like – called us a tow truck and, like, helped us, like, get the car moved to, like, where we needed to get the tires changed and, like, literally brought us, like, fucking, like, lentils and rice and, like, non-alcoholic beers and bubbly water and, like, fucking olives and shit. And, And we, like, sat on the sidewalk waiting for the... um. The tow truck for like two hours, and honestly, we we're, we were chilling.
0: Yeah, we were having like a reasonably nice time,
1: considering all <laughs> Considering you know, and then you know, we got the fucking tires changed in the morning. We got the shit fucking washed off the car, and we drove to Seattle and did our Seattle event the next day. The tour went on, and it you know it was fine. Yeah, but it was very bonkers that people did that, and um, you know, it's funny because people are like, cancel culture doesn't even exist. Um and then this happens and also um you know the the haters in portland afterwards were like having a field day on twitter like mocking us because like we we raised money afterwards like we did a gofundme to like cover the cost of the, the tires, tires and the tow truck and like the cleaning and so on and the um the gofundme like doubled the amount that we asked for in a day which is fucking awesome and like we're really thankful to everybody who contributed and shared so that was great because it also meant that we could like pay for some of the gas money yeah and pay for the uber because like in seattle we took an uber to like the event and on the way home from the event because i was like first of all i'm exhausted and second of all they can't be slashing my tires two days in a row yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, so thank you guys for that. And then yeah, some haters were just like making fun of us. Um, and also like justifying slashing our tires, um, in some pretty interesting and creative ways. So yeah, so I don't, I don't want to make the whole tour about that because like overall the tour was like fucking amazing. And that's the only thing that happened. You know, we did 12 events, you know, that were very well attended, lots of fucking people. Mm -hmm. Um, and those that was the only thing that happened, yeah. and it happened in Portland, yeah, so of course it
0: happened in Portland, yeah. But yeah, you know, um, I guess I mean, it's a pretty good, pretty good time to segue into like the main topic of the episode, which is like basically we're going to be talking about like targeted violence as a political strategy or even like a political goal, yeah. Um, and basically, like, people. People slashing our tires and like, you know, pouring like chemicals on our car and like in the church and stuff.
1: Well, pouring shit on our car.
0: Yeah, I guess it was, it did seem to be like liquid shit.
1: It definitely was shit.
0: Yeah. And believing that that is political activism is really interesting. And it's like, how did we get to that stage, you know? And like, part of it is that I think that there's this um, set of tactics borrowed from like old school, like Antifa stuff, um, that is sort of like how can you, um, disrupt and target, like, the activities of neo Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people who are calling for genocide and, like, the extermination of, like, ethnic groups and who want to instigate an armed, uh, fascist coup and, you know, um, basically bring into being a horrifying bloodbath that is going to kill us and all of our friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for clear and obvious reasons for a very long time, people have been like trying to find ways to kind of disrupt that kind of thing. But I think that what's happened is that more recently um, many people have started to decide that like that kind of um, activism, those kinds of actions um, can and should be directed against a much much broader range of um, political opponents of theirs um, and that can include other leftists that they vaguely disagree with um, and r- more recently we've been seeing kind of spate of people claiming that those kinds of tactics should be leveraged against quote unquote abusers
1: yeah, okay so there's a couple of things I want to say to that first, like I think that part of the reason for what you're talking about this like drift there's somebody who wrote about something called like I think like concept drift or something do you remember this mm-hmm. who was that do you remember
0: I don't remember but I know what you're talking yeah about.
1: anyway we'll look it up but and also I think contra points Natalie Wynn in her video on cancel culture back in the day she also talked about not exactly concept drift but like the thing in cancel culture where like the accusations keep getting conflated with the worse and worse thing. Right. You know? Yeah. Which is like a fundamental part of how cancel culture works is that like the accusations, they they drift and they get worse and worse and things get conflated. And it, it goes from being like something maybe small and specific into something like very extreme sounding, like as extreme as it could be. So I feel like something similar is happening with this kind of justification. Absolutely. Because the idea that, you know, the kind of tactics that were initially supposed to be used or, like, were suggested to be used against organized fascists who are calling for genocide or, like, you know, targeted racist violence and things like this Mm -hmm. um, should be used against, like, Canadian podcaster socialists is, like, a leap. But in their minds, it's not a leap because they literally do think of us as fascists. Right. Um, And that's really crazy but this kind of, like, expanding, like, what these things mean and, like, what can be put under that heading is, like, a big part of the way that this works. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that I think that there's another strand in this that is separate from, like, Antifa, um, which is rooted in probably Riot Girl. Right. Um, the
0: Switchblade Tattoo Kill Your Rapist thing?
1: Yes. Yeah. And I do have a switchblade tattoo, so <laughs> but um yeah, like there's like a seven-year bitch song that's called Dead Men Don't Rape. Right. Um, and like, you know, I'm definitely a little young to have been around for Riot Girl. and um, that's like about ten years older than me, I think. But um, like for people who were like in their teens and twenties when that was like a thing. Right. Um, but I definitely was, like, in the aftermath of that. And when I was, like, a teenager, there was still a lot of influence of that. And I think that that has continued to be, like, a strand, like, within the nexus. This idea of, like, kill your rapist, um, kill your local abuser, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that is, like, distinct from, like, the anti-fascist lineage. But I feel like they're kind of coming together in this way, where now um, interpersonal violence is being equated with fascism in some Mm -hmm. kind of a way. Mm -hmm. And then also both of these things are being justified as like, we should violently assault or kill people who we are deeming as abusers and or fascists.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the two strands are merging together mm -hmm. and um, there's been, in fact, I know that they're merging together and there's been a number of, um sort of like I guess you could call them think pieces recently in like anarcho world yes, um, that are very explicitly like marrying the two. yes um, and so we wanted to get into some of that um, this episode. We are not going to talk about, I think individual like authors of these ideas, but we're gonna try to talk about the concepts themselves and and work through the concepts um, and the ideas that are behind them rather than uh, going after individuals.
1: Yeah. And I mean, if you want to, you know, it's not too hard to find this stuff online, so you Mm -hmm. can go look around on Twitter. Yeah. Um, But it's
0: a, yeah, like basically it's a kind of concerning um, ideological drift that we've seen and we wanted to tackle it because it, I mean, for various reasons, but one is because, yeah, like I I feel like in a a much less, um, you know, like what happened to our car was much less violent than what some people are calling for, um, obviously, but it is i think part of the same kind of like trend yes um and so yeah i don't know it's worth talking about for for a number of reasons but yeah.
1: yeah um i also want to say that this what's interesting so these people who make these types of arguments that you know murdering and assaulting people who they are calling abusers and fascists is a sound political project and what we should do um these people generally situate themselves within anarchist ideology mm-hmm. and also bizarrely within abolitionist ideology, yeah. which is one of the most bonkers things about it to me because the whole like kill your rapist phenomenon, like I'm more familiar with that lineage, you know, because I come out of that. Um, kind of like feminist world where there was a lot of that kind of thing going on mm-hmm. or like rhetorically there was anyway. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't agree with it. I don't think you should murder people and I don't think that you should um, assault people. But it's kind of like, in, it's like internally coherent even right. if I don't agree with it. Like it does make right. sense as an argument. Like you could make the argument.
0: You could make the argument. You yeah. could
1: make the argument that it's a good idea to martyr rapists Um, but like marrying that with abolitionism is absolutely bonkers to me that's where
0: it gets very weird and it's
1: very contradictory and odd and so I just kind of want to like pull this thread out a little bit like these people there's literally we saw one of them say on Twitter burn the prisons and then kill the rapists that were in the prisons (laughs) something like that burn the rapists and kill the prison oh wait burn the sorry (laughs) Kill the rapists, burn the prisons. Kill the rapists, right?
0: Yeah. And I think that at least part of that argument, to be to be sort of like fair to that that person, I think at least part of that argument is the idea that like um, you burn the prisons so that when you kill the rapist, you can't be put in prison,
1: right? Yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because they don't so... they don't want to be
0: punished for murder, right? Yeah. But I think that like yeah like. What this says to me is that there's at least two quite different strands of abolitionism or two quite different streams from which people sort of like enter into calling themselves an abolitionist. Right. So like one is um, where I think we would come from, which is the idea that like prisons are like deeply cruel, um, are not very effective at what they're supposed to do. Um, and that there are like much more, uh, useful places for society to be putting its energy and resources, um, in terms of sort of like trying to keep people safe and trying to like fight against like the phenomenon of crime and violence. Right. Um, and also that people in general are deserving of dignity and respect and like prison is pretty, um, pretty much, you know, opposed to that. So that's one, right. But I think there's like another strand or thread that is where these people are coming from, which is a bit harder for me to understand like what they think exactly. I think part of it is just kind of this like rah-rah anarchy kind of like mm-hmm. attitude where they're just like, basically the state is the problem. Right. Um, not the actual institution of prisons necessarily, you know, or the, or like the institution of punishment, I should say. Yes. Like punishment is fine. The state is the problem. Yes. Um, and deeming someone guilty and then meeting out some sort of punishment to them is okay. But doing it through a court system is wrong. Having like an organized police force that, that enforces this is wrong. Um, and having like a, a prison as, as like an institution that is, um, you know, that is like tax funded and, and controlled by the government. Like that is what's wrong. Right.
1: Yes. And um, I guess part of it as well is that they believe that in prisons, many people are in prisons who don't deserve to be there.
0: Yeah. So, this is like a, a sort of like subsection of this, I guess, which is like, or like a, yeah, like a, a subset of this second abo- abolitionist stream, which is, I would say, a kind of like bastardized anti racism, particularly mm-hmm. in the US. Yeah. Where they're basically just like prisons are like the only point of prisons is to like oppress black people. Um, and th- that's why we should get rid of prisons.
1: Yeah. And so, there's a lot of innocent, black people in prison and like that's the problem and people should not be put into prison due to like racism but the people that are in prison due to actually committing violent crimes fuck them basically
0: i guess or like possibly we support them um up until we learn that their violent crime may have included assaulting a woman and or non-binary person
1: i don't know I don't know. I honestly think part of the way that people who hold these confusing views deal with it is that they kind of dissociate a little bit.
0: Yeah. Um, Because like I am trying to be generous here. Yes, we are trying to be generous. um, And so I'm trying to like think of like how this could really make sense in someone's head. Um,
1: I think that part of it is that people don't fucking know people who are in jail. And so if you don't, if you've never met people who have been in and out of jail, if you have no connection to that world, um, it is easy to have a fantasy... That the majority of people in jail are there kind of by mistake or like the reason that they're in jail is largely due to racism. Um, and so therefore we don't really need to grapple with the question of the, the reality that like so many people who are in prison have committed violent crimes, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's a lot of it. It's a sort of like dissociative, like not dealing with that issue. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. And I do want to be generous as well and not, dismiss that. So if somebody is listening and thinks that we're missing something, some important point to this, um, this position, please do let us know because we would like to understand it, but it doesn't really make sense to me. Um, one thing that I do want to say, you know, in our generous attempt to understand these positions is one of the critiques that I get, you know, when I say fuck the police means we don't act like cops to each other is people will be like, well, like, calling out abusers is not acting like cops because cops don't care about abuse. Right. And like, I think it's true that in general, the police and the courts and prisons do not very often intervene in interpersonal violence.
0: Or they do so in a kind of like almost like random way. Yeah. Like where, you know, because like do, people do go to jail for yes, I know. domestic abuse, rape, like assault, you know what I mean? Like, but lots I of guess them, like, like hundreds of thousands of them, you yeah, know? Yeah, but, but com- like there's many who like get away with so called get away with it or, um, yeah, but go ahead and please continue.
1: Like, compared to the amount that actually happened. Right. I would say it's probably a small percentage of them. I don't know what the numbers are. Yeah. But like it's a very small percentage of them that go to jail. Yeah. It's also because like... the
0: police are like notoriously bad at actually like investigating crime. And <laughs> Sorry. I just... I just, I was thinking, I'm okay, this is kind of an aside, but I was just, like, talking about this recently with other people, how, like, you know, very occasionally at work, because I work for a shelter, like, we have to interact with the police, you know, and, like, very occasionally, like, we don't really have much of a choice but to, as an institution, call the police, you know, and, like, so often, like, the police just show up, like, five hours later and, like, do absolutely nothing on, like, the the few instances where we, like, actually, it would be quite helpful to have, like, a, you know, an armed person there to, like, enforce some kind of, like, rule that we, like, have to have enforced, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and as uncomfortable as that is, like, sometimes it, like, does have to happen in an institutional setting like that. Um, and they're just, like, so fucking useless and or, like, enforce things so randomly because it'll be, like, the same person who they took five hours to show up and then just didn't do anything. Like, they'll catch him, like, fucking, like, throwing, like, a bottle across the street and then, like, book him and, and like, sure. he goes to fucking jail, you know? For sure. Um. Anyway, sorry. That was, like, quite an aside. Please continue. Yes.
1: Yeah, so... Also though, by its very nature, interpersonal violence meaning domestic violence like when sexual assault and child abuse, these types of interpersonal violence, they happen largely in private. Mm-hmm. So they're hard to prove. Yes. Like, that's also part of it, you know, because yeah. it's yeah, yeah. it's hard to prove because there aren't witnesses. Like, sometimes there's witnesses, but if there are witnesses, they're usually part of the family unit and don't necessarily want to, um, you know, like, name what happened. And secondly, like, often you're alone. Right. Like, with rape, for example, you're usually alone when right. that happens. Right. Right? And so unless you go and you get, like, a rape kit, which... People don't for like a whole number of reasons, one of which being that like the sexual assaults that happen within the context of a relationship, it's very difficult to decide to do that because you're in a relationship with the person and presumably you might be trying to make that relationship work. Mm -hmm. You're not going to go to the police right away, you Mm -hmm, know? mm
0: -hmm. So I guess like part of the, part of the logic behind all this is that like, from a feminist perspective, you can like look at the criminal justice system, and you can be like the criminal justice system is set up in such a way that very often for the kinds of violent crimes that are experienced by like women in sort of domestic scenarios, um, cannot really be uh, prosecuted by the criminal justice system because there very often isn't evidence. Um, And the criminal justice system requires evidence in order to make a conviction most of the time, right? Um, And so from that perspective, you might be like, okay, so the solution then is to believe women with a capital B and a capital W. um, And potentially, if you want to take it to an extreme, do a kind of like vigilante justice operation, like on the basis that the state is not going to protect women.
1: Yes. And I think that that kind of really is the heart of what they believe. Right. I think that that's pretty much us deal manning their argument. And I have a lot of empathy for that. Yeah. I do. Because look, I have had police intervention in my experiences of abuse twice. The first time I was literally a child. I was literally taken out of my high school by a um, social worker, brought to a police station, put into a little room with a mirror and I disclosed that there was a pedophile in my family who was who had access to children, um, who had sexually assaulted me. And the police dropped me off at home and never contacted me again. You know? Yeah. Um, there was no trial. There was if there was any investigation, I did not know anything about it. They yeah. never talked to me again, they never checked on me again. Yeah. Um, and they um he the pedophile in question had access to children until the day that he died, you know? So that's my first one. My second one was through like domestic violence in my, um, early twenties where, you know, like very serious physical and sexual violence followed by intense stalking, um, was happening to me. And like the police ended up getting involved and just the fucking chaos of that situation was, it was really not helpful. There's really, not a lot that they could do, you know. Like, he went to jail for a little while, he got out of jail, he's knocked me again, etc. Um, and when I went through like a rape trial with a jury, like, this is a person with an extensive criminal record who has, you know, pled guilty to many, many violent crimes, um, who had been found guilty of physically assaulting me, mm-hmm. etc. And still, he was found not guilty, right. And so I can have a lot of fucking empathy for understanding how desperate survivors can be, especially in a situation of like stalking or ongoing abuse that you're trying to get away from.
0: Like the rage is completely understandable.
1: Yeah. And also like the helplessness, the feeling of like, what the fuck are we supposed to do? Right. Yeah. So I get that. And I always feel like I need to like fucking emphasize that I get that because I feel like people really do not like my haters do not steal a man, my arguments. No, <laughs> they do not attempt to engage with my arguments in good faith. And they always deny like that reality that I fucking know this already, you know, yeah, yeah. very intimately. Yeah. Um, but there's a few other pieces here. Right. And it, it took me a long time to really get to this place, but there's a reason why. Courts require a certain degree of evidence mm-hmm. to convict. Convict,
0: yeah. Um, it's it's something that we fought for.
1: Yeah, and we did an episode on this: the rights of the accused. Yeah. Um, because it's a very fucking serious thing to charge someone with rape and to put them in jail for that.
0: Yeah, or to charge them with anything.
1: Yeah, to Just... charge them with anything. Yeah, but like f- things like physical assault and and sexual assault, you know, the consequences on your life for being convicted of something like that is extreme. And like the time you're going to spend in jail is probably going to be, I mean, it's not going to be nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a reason for that. And I think that how these people cope with that issue is through the idea that false accusations don't happen.
0: Pretty much, pretty much.
1: Yeah. And so there's this statistic That I don't even know where it comes from. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before.
0: Yeah. It's been floating around the internet for years. It's been
1: floating around the internet for years. And they basically say, I think it's like 2% of like.
0: 2% of rapes are, result in a conviction.
1: No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. No? No. I'm talking about the false accusation thing.
0: Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's something similar. It's like some, some very small number of, uh, of accusations end up being like proven to be false. Basically.
1: Yeah, but I don't even know how what they mean by proven to be false because they're not talking about not guilty.
0: Yeah, it's like when basically like police forces I guess have to sort of like determine that not only was like the the accused not guilty but that the accuser was lying.
1: Right, which I don't even know where this this is coming from. It doesn't it's not really clear.
0: It happens very rarely and also if you like like that happens very rarely because there's not a lot of instances where the police would make an investigation like that, l- would make like a determination that the accuser is lying, you know? Um, but also it's like there are, if you look at the literature, which unfortunately I have done uh, um, many years ago, I, bec- I was like interested in that topic um, and I like looked through it and like there's vastly differing, Numbers, like when, yes. when you look in the literature, like depending on the study and how the study is designed, you know, yeah, it's very hard to know, but yeah. it's hard
1: to know. That's yeah. the thing. But whatever, regardless, like this 2% of accusations are false thing mm. is coming from like one particular study and it's talking about accusations made to the police right. about sexual assault. Right. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Yeah. It's not talking about accusations made to the internet mm-hmm. about vaguely defined abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, And so the idea that you can like extrapolate from that statistic Mm -hmm. to all types of accusations is obviously untrue. Yeah. Especially when we get into this like concept drift stuff that we're talking about within cancel culture in which, you know, you can have a situation where like, um, there's so many situations like this, but like just as a random example, like a guy like cheated on his girlfriend and now he's being accused of, domestic violence or rape mm-hmm. because he didn't disclose that he had cheated on her. And so any further like sex that she had with him was like not with full knowledge. And so therefore it's considered rape. Yeah. But like when you then just call him a rapist,
0: obviously what people imagine is it's like a more, violent
1: sexual assault, far
0: more severe than just like a jerk.
1: Yeah. than just like a person who cheated, yeah. you know, like there's, I mean, cheating is not good, but it's, it's not the same thing. Yeah. So um and that's just like one example there's many of them,
0: yeah totally and so in in the criminal justice system you have you have the the like it's necessary to um, to have evidence before you convict someone because there's the chance that the accusation against them is unfounded or that you have the wrong person you know there's like there's lots of ways in yes. which that punishment could not you know um be appropriate right, and that's why all those checks and balances are required in the criminal justice system. And I think that people who basically have decided that just like murdering abusers or whatever is, is justifiable and indeed like an important political goal. um, Think that because they have this, this idea in the back of their head or maybe in the front of their head that there's no such thing as a false accusation about abuse or rape. Um, And even if there is, it's not really very important. I think is also the kind of like subtext,
1: Right. Yes. Um, there is a thing where people are like, I would rather side with a liar than an abuser. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yes.
0: And it's like, I mean, this, this the, the management needs you to find the difference between those two pictures.
1: Yes. Because it's like, if you are siding with a liar who's doing false accusations to justify violence against someone or to like control them or to like destroy their life in some kind of serious way, like that's. An abuser. Mm -hmm. That person is abusing that other person. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's the concept of false accusations and the fact that they do exist. In cancel culture, they're insanely common. Sorry, controversial opinion, but actually a true fact. Um, They're insanely common. And people who um, believe that they are empowered to enact violence against people who have been accused of things don't want to grapple with that question because then they would have to grapple with the reality that they might be enacting violence against someone who literally did not do the thing that they were accused of. And in fact, they might actually be taking part in abusing someone. Like, they might actually be, like, furthering, like, a domestic violence campaign against someone, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then there's, like, the question of, um, okay, fine, say they did it. Mm -hmm. Should we... Assault and murder and or murder rapists and abusers.
0: Right. So that's the question, right? And like, I think that, so before we started recording, Clementine and I were talking about this and I was basically like, I understand why people want to do that. And I even understand why it happens occasionally, you know? Um, And if, if someone I knew like saw her rapist on the street, and like beat him up or something like it's not like i would be like you know i don't i don't necessarily like condone it but like it's not like i can't understand it mm-hmm. you know um, it 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 makes sense like people are like very angry like and and violence like you know is sort of part of human life to a certain degree and you know i understand that but i think that that is separate from putting forward a political position, which argues that our reaction as a society to, um, something like abuse should be execution. Right. And, and it might sound like we're, we're like being, um, like hyperbole, you know, but like, this is actually the argument that is being made mm-hmm. out there yes. on, on the internet by like this sort of like specific crowd of anarchists that murdering, um, executing, um, rapists and or abusers is is a like a viable anarchist political project, yes. right? And and so we have to unpack this a little bit. Like, what would it actually look like if that was a stance that was taken up by you know the majority? Of the population, because I think that that's always kind of like the litmus test that we need to that we need to have for our political yes. proposals. You know, like if you are a serious political actor in any kind of a way, like you are you're proposing ideas that you think could apply to you know the whole society, right? Otherwise, you're just in a cult. Um, and so, if you imagine a society in which our reaction to um, people doing bad things is that they get executed by essentially like a mob, um, you know, with no trial and, and yes. no evidence and anything like that. And also that like the, the prerequisite for being part of the, um, executors, the murderers is that you personally believe that you are a good person. You know, um, I think it's not hard to see how that is, um, I mean, not only is it just kind of, like, scary and crazy, but I have to point out that it's, like, okay, like, one, it bears a lot of resemblance to what, uh, to, like, the caricature of, like, anarchy that, like, you know, um, like, right-wingers and stuff. like right. You know, they're like, how would be anarchy? Like, right. It would look like everyone just running around killing each other, and they're like, yes. Um, <laughs> but also, it bears a striking resemblance to certain... Um, parts of fascist ideology. Yes. Which essentially argue that like, there's like a caste yes, of people who are sort of like essentially, um, and, you know, like they're essentially like good and morally pure and that, that moral purity comes kind of from within them, yes. you know? Um, and there are other people who the inverse is true and they're sort of like essentially corrupt in some kind of um, inherent way um and that the task of the the cast of good people is to using violence um repress the bad people yes um and that you know much of this canon should be done sort of like extrajudicially like that the rule of law doesn't really need to apply if you just have these sort of like gangs of armed people who are armed not only with weapons but with like, their moral purity and their knowledge of the truth, you know? Yes. And so this is, like, the the classic, like, fascist um, archetype of, like, the black shirts and, you know, these, like, these, like, groups of guys in uniforms who go around sort of beating up political opponents and stringing up, um, you know, people that they are accusing of having committed sort of, like, crimes against the national honor or whatever it is, you know? Um, and this is something that we, that we saw in like Nazi Germany and in Italy and like in other places where fascists took over. Right. And so I'm not going to argue that these anarchists are sort of like actually fascists, but I am going to say that the things that they're proposing, if you take them and apply them to like, to the world on like the, the scale of a society, they end up looking like very fucking similar to the fascists, which they purport to be against, you know? Because it's just like, who the fuck put you in charge? That's it. Who the fuck put you in charge of murdering people that you don't like? Who put you in charge of executing criminals? Yes. Like, why are you allowed to execute criminals? And why is there no checks and balances on your behavior?
1: Exactly. And I think that this is the thing, because it's like when I'm trying to grapple with things like ethics, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, if I'm going to ask myself if something is wrong, it's kind of like the question of, like, is, is like, universality versus, like, specificity when it comes to ethics. Does this make sense? Because I'm like, it's wrong to assault anyone. Mm. It doesn't matter who's doing the assaulting or who's being assaulted. It is the assault that is wrong. Mm-hmm. And it honestly doesn't matter to me what the context is unless it's, like, a self-defense or something like that to, like, intervene on an assault. Right. But otherwise, assault is wrong. These people are like, assault is only wrong, like, when people are doing it for the wrong reasons Mm. or the wrong people are doing it. Right. Basically. Right. But they don't actually think that assault itself is wrong. Right. And so... if you
0: only believe that assault is wrong when the wrong people are doing it, then why do you even oppose the police? You know what I mean? Because the, the, the whole like...
1: Well, because to them, those are the wrong people.
0: Well, yeah, but it's the same logic though. Yeah. They just think it's a different well, set Well, but this of is it. And yeah. so this
1: is the exact thing because it's like people have a blind spot about themselves, mm-hmm. right? Because people are themselves. And so they believe that they can clearly see mm-hmm. like they have clear a clear vision, clear ethics. They can tell what is right and what is wrong, and they themselves would never, ever abuse power. They themselves would never use this in a corrupt way. They themselves would never make a mistake, right? And so because of that, they feel justified in empowering themselves with that level of authority over somebody's life. Right, right. I don't feel empowered to justify that level of authority over someone's life.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And like... I invite you also to consider, like, to imagine it in practice, you know? And, like, I don't know, man. Like, I'm just going to bring up work again, you know, because it always makes me think about this. But, yeah, so, like, I work I work at a shelter, you know? There's, like, a number of men who access services where I work who, like, can't go back to their villages in the north. Um, because they committed rapes there and were basically, like, told to fuck off and never come back, you know? And I obviously, like, don't condone that. I think that it's extremely, like, reprehensible for them to have done that, right? Also, if someone came in to my center with, like, a machete and was like, I'm going to murder that man. Yes. You it- know? Like, I would, like, try to stop that from happening. Of course. You know? Like, I would not want to permit someone to like murder one of my service users you know yes no matter what they did yes right and like yeah i don't know i don't think that it's like i think that i would be justified in trying to stop that violence from taking place yes right
1: yeah i always want to when i talk about this topic i'm always like let's take examples from clementine's crazy life but um I did once physically assault someone who had GHB'd me Mm -hmm. and like, I didn't do it very well Mm -hmm. because I'm small Mm -hmm. and was drunk and Mm -hmm. I don't know how to fight. (laughs) But like, you know, I once saw a man who had previously GHB'd me and he did not rape me, but it's because I escaped and he chased me. Anyway, I saw him sitting at a bar, like at an all ages show like next to some fucking water jugs
0: where people Mm -hmm. were
1: getting water and I a hundred percent knew what he was doing and I was really, really drunk and I just ran up to him and started like screaming at him, like calling him a rapist and like physically hitting him. And I was taken out of the, I was physically removed and then the person who physically was removing me, I bit them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then I was put into a police car.
0: (laughs) Mm-hmm. It does happen when you bite people. Yes. Yeah.
1: But fortunately, I was given mercy because when it became clear to the person I had bit the reason I was doing what I was doing, they decided to let it go. Mm. So I was was banned from the bar, but that's all. Mm. But I say this to be like, look, I get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm not out here casting judgment and condemnation upon like crazy survivors who are drunk and like hitting someone who fucking... GHB'd them. Yeah. You know? I understand. Like, I really do. And we need better solutions to sexual assault than assaulting people.
0: Yes. And so this is the, this is one of my other sort of like main interventions into this that I want to make, which is, again since we're critiquing this on the level of like a political project, right? Because people are putting this forward as like basically like a proposal for how to handle this kind of crime, right? Since we're critiquing it on that level, like we also have to think about whether it makes any fucking sense strategically. Yes. um, And also sort of like in terms of our like energy and like where we're putting it, right? Do we think that we can make a dent basically in sexual assault by seeking out what is always going to be like a minuscule minority of perpetrators and murdering them or more realistically fantasizing about murdering right. them because like,
1: cause these people aren't actually for the most part like, murdering people.
0: Like almost none of these people would ever like actually kill anyone or yes. have the skills or like tools to do so. Um, so is it useful for us to spend our time fantasizing about murdering a tiny fraction of perpetrators? Um, And I guess like, you know, that would show them or whatever, but like in the meantime, the conditions that produce all of this, like the conditions that produce the kind of people who would commit a sexual assault, like remain right. The um, lack of services for survivors remain. Like, all of the things that made the problems in the first place remain. Yes. It's just that now you have spent a bunch of your energy fantasizing about killing someone. Yes. Um, and so, you know, on that level, it's like, that doesn't seem to be to be particularly effective, you know? Um, and then, on the other hand, it's also like, what, what are we, like, not doing instead, you know? Like, if we spend all of our time, like trying to respond to the issue of sexual assault or domestic violence with this sort of like murderous fantasizing, it means that we're not spending that time um, doing things that might actually be effective. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, abolitionism, at least the abolitionism that I am aligned with, takes the perspective that not only does violence and punishment not solve the problem, but it makes the problem worse. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a really important piece of it because, okay, it's true. Most of the time, these people are not out here murdering people. Mm -hmm. That's, it's kind of absurd. They're literally on Twitter. They aren't murdering people, Yeah, but it is that fantasy is part of a range of behaviors that do actually exist. Yes. Right. That include, for example, the idea we all know what goes on in jails.
0: Mm -hmm. It's fucking
1: violent in there. Yeah. There's constantly jokes about the fact that people in jail are sexually assaulted. Yeah. Um, and we think that's funny and fine because they did violent things themselves, right? Yeah. So this idea that people who have done violent things deserve to have their bodily autonomy taken away from them is a real fucking thing that exists in our society, right? Yes. These like supposed like anarchists are, are fantasizing about taking that to its ultimate extreme expression
0: mm-hmm. through murder, mm-hmm.
1: but it currently exists as one of the main ways that that, like, we deal with violence, right? Is, like, we think that people should go to jail. And it's true. Not all people who um, commit violent crimes do go to jail. um, But the ones that do, they experience violence inside the jails. Yes. Um, And cancel culture is also an expression of this impulse, right? It is the idea that once a person has been accused of something, that they should have everything good stripped away from them in their life. Right? Um, and this can range from things like, obviously just like not having friends, not being allowed to have the job that you want to have, like not being allowed to take part in social life, like being banned from places, et cetera, et cetera. But like all of these ideas, cancel culture, prison, fantasizing about killing your rapist, all of these ideas spring from like the same place, which is that You know, punishment is good. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Punishment is an effective means of deterring people from violence and is a justifiable expression of people's like pain over having been victimized. Yeah. But is punishment an effective way of preventing violence?
0: That I believe would ruin to be seen.
1: What what does that mean? (laughs)
0: I mean, it is not... I don't think that it has been shown that punishment is a useful way to prevent violence.
1: Right. And I actually think that there's a strong argument to be made that it not only is not an effective way to prevent violence, but it actually can increase violence.
0: Yeah. I mean, it produces trauma and it produces, like, cycles of violence. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, like, from... Like, okay. So, when... With children, Mm -hmm. right? If a child is punished, humiliated, made to feel like they're bad because they did something, like hit their friend, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: is that going to decrease the chances of them hitting their friend? Or is it going to associate hitting their friend with all of these feelings of like helplessness and shame, which then when they feel helplessness and shame, they want to overcome by hitting their friend, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas another way to educate children about why they shouldn't hit their friend is to connect them with empathy. Yeah. To be like, you know, if someone hit you, how would that make you feel? Mm -hmm. Well, when you hit your friend, that's how it makes your friend feel. And then to connect that empathy with integrity by helping the child to build their own integrity by understanding that they don't want to make people feel bad. Right. Mm -hmm. So that is a different way of approaching, um, trying to change behavior other than punishment. Right. And I think that in the, the world of like parenting and stuff, like we have shifted or like there is a shift away from punishment towards this other kind of like parenting that is about empathy, empowerment, integrity, and helping people to make better choices, you know? Yes. Um, and so similarly, it's much more complicated when you're dealing with like supremely traumatized adults or people who have been caught in cycles of violence for a long time. But similarly, you know, humiliating people you know, calling them bad, taking away their resources, et cetera. It is very likely to keep them in the exact place that made them be violent in the first place,
0: Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think, I don't know. I, I always want to like relentlessly drag things back to the level of the social and, and move away from the level of the individual, because I think that we're like really like so often, um, stuck on the level of the individual, you know? which is why we're like, okay, but I want to like retaliate against this person or I want to punish this person or something. And it's like, okay, those are understandable impulses, right? Um, However, when we step away from the individual and we move to the level of the social, we're able to be like, okay, as a political project, again, you know, like should we be advocating for the like basically targeted assassinations of individuals or should we be trying to think of ways to make a world that produces less violence. Because I think that that is the whole point of being a fucking socialist. You know, I think that one of the things about a number of these anarchists, I'm not going to say like all anarchists, but there's like definitely like a subset of anarchists that allows this kind of thinking is that they've kind of like, um, they've like painted themselves into a corner where they truly like, they truly believe that like 95% of people are like, irredeemable like monsters you know they don't really have a sense of solidarity with like the population Mm -hmm. like the the broad like working class or whatever because they're so caught up in um and this isn't just anarchists but a, a lot of like nexus people are like this in general where they're like so caught up in this kind of like hyper intersectionality um that they're just like only the like multiply marginally uh multiply marginalized Um, and oppressed people like are good people. Um, and everyone else is kind of a monster in various ways, you know? And so if we like, basically if we bump off one or two of them, it doesn't really matter that much, you know? Um, and there's no way that they're ever really going to get better, you know? And there's no way. And the reason why they don't agree with us, like maybe if they all agreed with us, like the world would be better. But the reason they won't agree with us is because they're so fucked up, you know? Not because our ideas are sound kind of crazy or we're like for bad at expressing them or whatever, you know? Um, and because they have that. That stance of just sort of like weird hatred of like ninety five percent of the population, yeah, they're they're I think they're able to come to conclusions like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I don't know. I think that like if you are proceeding from a place where you are trying to have solidarity with the the majority of people, you know, um, it makes more sense to start being like okay like what are things we know produce violence? Like what are conditions under which people are more likely to be enacting violence? What are conditions that make people safer? You know um, we know that like having lots and lots of police around, like is not necessarily one of those conditions, you know Um, we do know that like um, in scenarios where people have like access to uh, a lot of stability in terms of like their income mm-hmm, and like their housing and like, um, you know, their their social status and stuff, they tend, there tends to be much, much less violence yeah. um, in scenarios like that, you know, like that's absolutely the case. And so wouldn't it make more sense to be focusing our efforts on trying to build up conditions like that yes. in North America um, rather than to be, yeah, sort of like always stuck on the level of the individual trying to punish individuals it's like it's like you're fucking like boat is sinking and you're just sort of like scooping water yes. out of it with your hands you know yes
1: yeah and i think so you know in in the tradition of trying to still man their arguments and like engage with them in good faith though that is sometimes difficult for me um i think the other piece that this doesn't address cuz like what you're talking about is basically creating the conditions in which there would be less violence, right? So it's preventative. It's like, how could we create the conditions under which there's less violence, you know? And we're talking about how violence actually creates more violence, not less. And so, you know, if, we, if our goal is to produce less violence, you know, murdering people or, you know, traumatizing people or imprisoning people or like, you know, humiliating people, all of these different strategies of punishment are not going to create less violence, and so instead we should, you know, resource people, we should have robust societies where people's fucking needs are met, we should have, you know, free trauma therapy, we should have, mm-hmm. like, whatever, a socialist society in which people are not always under fucking stress and trauma and can actually, like, you know, raise their children with, like, what they need and so on and so forth. Yes. Okay, and I agree with all that. And I don't think it's a strong argument. But I think where these people will continue to disagree with us even if they're able to accept that piece, is that they also believe that punishment is a form of justice because it has to do with things that happened in the past. Mm. And it's not about prevention. It's about, like, they believe that punishment does both. It's preventative, but it also is about justice. It's about setting right the wrongs. And this is where you get the phrase, he got away with it, Mm -hmm. right? Because if someone is not punished, then what? you know? And I think that this is a really important kind of like philosophical question for people to think about, because I think we live in a culture that takes punishment for granted as an obviously necessary thing in order to take something seriously and try to correct the wrong that has happened. Um, and if someone is not punished, then it feels like that thing was not taken seriously. It was not responded to. It was just left there. Um, And I fucking understand that, you know, because trauma survivors are like, you know, they need a a response. They need, they do need some kind of justice in the sense that like there needs to be some kind of repair. Their pain needs to matter. Like we can't just say, okay, what's done is done, (laughs) you know? Yeah, Yeah. Um, but simultaneously what's done is done. Like it has happened and it now is in the past and it cannot be prevented. It can only be, I mean, future things can be prevented. Um, and then, you know, we can try to deal with what what is now, now that that has happened, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can try to take whatever actions of repair are possible. And what I'm really curious about is, like, what could that look like outside of punishment, you know? And I actually think that it is a misunderstanding that punishment will like actually correct the damage that was done or will help the survivor heal and move on, you know? Like, I think we take it for granted that that is true. But like, is it true?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we could say with certainty one way or the other. I mean, I suppose that some people might get a kind of catharsis from it. I don't know how healthy that is, honestly, but I do, I do understand why some people would want punishment, uh, to be.
1: Yeah. But I think what it does emotionally is that punishment temporarily relieves the abject feeling of helplessness that you experience when you are traumatized Mm. because it is to enact against the other, right? Right. It is to enact power over the other. And to force them in some way to experience something that they don't want to experience. And like, that's what happened to you. And so like, if you are able to do that to the other, then you can, for a moment, restore like a sense of agency and power.
0: Yeah. It's like, see, like I'm not powerless actually.
1: Yes. But like, fundamentally, I don't think that this restores your agency and your empowerment like in a sustainable and long-term way, you know, in your life. I think it just temporarily gives you the feeling of that. In this context over this person, you know, and in some ways I actually think that it actually has the opposite effect of being disempowering and decreasing agency because people become fixated on the person who abused them and believe that their healing is tied to that person, you know, and believe that, you know, this person being punished in some kind of way is necessary for their healing. And also what if they're punished and then you're still fucking traumatized? Yes. Because guess what? You are still traumatized. Yeah. And like that is not going to stop you from being traumatized. The work of healing from trauma is actually like a whole different thing and it's like a long and complicated process that punishing your abuser is actually not going to solve for you, you know? So I think it's kind of like a distraction from the actual work that survivors have ahead of them and it's this like – it's just like it isn't fair, you know? Mm. Like – to be traumatized, to have been abused, to have been assaulted, to have had horrible things happen to you, like, it isn't fair. It's wrong. And like, nothing is going to change that, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. there's a certain level of grief that has to happen there as well. Um, that I think is necessary for healing that I think that the focus on punishment, like distracts from.
0: Yeah. Also, I mean, often I think that people, when they imagine the the justice of punishing someone who's done something wrong, they, they kind of have to imagine in their minds like a good person and a bad person. Um, but I think that something that is very uncomfortable for people but is very real is that very often perpetrators of quite awful things have also had really awful things happen to them and vice versa. Like the people who they're perpetrating against have often done things and that's not not often i mean that's not always true you know but it is it's true often enough and um we have to we have to bear that in mind when we're talking about sort of like you should just like kill your local abuser or something that like very often what that means is is like the vigilante murderer of you know a multiply marginalized person, like, you know, people who have undergone like severe trauma in their own lives. Um, And that is why they are, that is often why people are acting out in um, really antisocial ways. Like I see it all the time at work, um, but also just having, you know, been around lots of sketchy people in my life. Like it's, it's, it's a fact that when people are exposed to, like, very um, dangerous and difficult circumstances when they're young and when they're growing up and stuff, like, you know, very often those kinds of adverse childhood experiences, as they call them, um, can translate into um, quite quite antisocial or destructive or disruptive behavior as an adult, right?
1: Yeah, and I think that these um, people actually have a different understanding of abuse where they kind of reject the idea that abuse is like a result of trauma. Right. And they believe that people abuse because they want to dominate and control. Right. And I'm like, yes, but why do they want to dominate and control, you know? Um, And, you know, I'm not saying that all, you know, all people who have been abusive have had like these horrifying childhoods or anything like that. But in terms of like, you know situations where there's like tons and tons of violence going on, like you know, people who are homeless, people who are addicts, people who are like in like really sketchy and fucked up situations where there's tons of violence going on, most of those people were traumatized as children, mm-hmm. um probably severely, and you know, even in cases where we're not talking about like super sketchy shit, but where someone is like you know violently like dominating another person, I'm like, why are they doing that? And the idea that they're just doing that because they just want to dominate another person, to me, I'm like, sure, maybe they do, but why? We are deeply and profoundly social animals. We have evolved in such a way that like the preservation of our social bonds is of the utmost importance. We have the capacity to turn off our empathy and to behave in antisocial ways But it kind of goes against our very like humanness because we are social animals. So why would we be doing that? You know, Mm -hmm. like that question is much more important to me than just this fantasy that the person is doing that just because they're bad, you know? Um, And so if a person is doing that, it's a kind of dissociation. It's a kind of dissociation from empathy and relationality. And yes, we live in a really fucked up culture and a really fucked up world and a really fucked up timeline. So it doesn't surprise me that a lot of people are like dissociating from their relationality um, and their empathy. Even like masculinity as a social construct, you know, the socialization of boys, even without extreme child abuse or something is a form of trauma. Like it is a form of repressing your empathy your relationality and your own relationship to your vulnerability and your feelings.
0: The way that we like produce boys is, I would argue, like quite abusive in and of itself.
1: <laughs> yes. And so it doesn't surprise me that men who were like boys who were taught, you know, that you're not supposed to cry, that you're not supposed to show weakness, that it's a good idea to be like the tough guy who's like, you know, in a position of dominance. hmm It doesn't surprise me that those people would then grow up to act in ways that might be dominating, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Or the fact that, like, definitely not all, but, like, so much violence takes place in the context of um, the overuse of alcohol. Yes. You know? And, like, there's reasons why people are overusing alcohol or are addicted to alcohol, you know? Um, Once again, trauma. Trauma. So much so much of the trauma
1: yeah. is behind all of this. Yeah. And so and I think where where people go when they like hear us saying things like this is they just think we're making excuses. Um or we're justifying it. I'm like, I'm not justifying it. I'm not making an excuse. But I think I'm just living in reality, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm living in reality where there's tons of people who are fucked up for tons of reasons who are treating each other in fucked up ways. And like I think that like the emotional catharsis of like punishing individual people for this um, is not worth the cost of that catharsis where the cost of it is us not seriously grappling with the conditions that create violence in the first place and therefore not actually fucking figuring out what we can do to change things in a meaningful and sustainable way.
0: Exactly. Like my... My job as a social actor is not to seek out and punish people who I think have, like, transgressed. My job as a, as a social actor is to, like, support people when they need support um, and to try to work towards a world that produces less violence.
1: Yeah. And so it's like, you know, there's kind of two levels with my response to the kill your rapist thing, you know? One is, like, what's it doing for you emotionally to have that fantasy? And then what's it doing like politically and socially for us to try to suggest that that fantasy is like a type of politics. Right. You know, I think on the social and political level, we've addressed it thoroughly in this episode, but it's like, that's not a politics. And the idea that that's actually going to do anything to transform or prevent abuse is like a joke. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a lot of problems with it because I don't find it ethical to assault and murder people. Yeah. In the level of, like, this sort of emotional aspect of, like, fantasizing about killing your rapist, it's like, I'm not saying that people are, like, bad people if they're fantasizing about killing their rapist. I'm not casting moral judgment upon you, you know? Like, I totally understand it. I totally get it. I get why people go there. And I'm like, you know what? Thoughts are free. You can think whatever the fuck you want. Mm -hmm. It's not really my place to be out here judging you. Mm -hmm. But as somebody who is also concerned with, like, trauma recovery and stuff... Right. Like if, if I had a friend, if you were my friend and you were telling me about this, I would be like, okay, like, I'm not saying you're a bad person for like wanting to think about that or imagine that. But like, I do think that there's more productive things you could be doing for your healing and for your empowerment and the development of your agency. And I do think that that fantasy, while it might be serving a purpose, like many maladaptive strategies, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm not judging an addict for being fucking high out of their mind right now. Mm -hmm. They're doing what they need to do to survive. Mm -hmm. But, like, long-term, there's probably better things that you could do that would be better for you that would be more empowering and more healing. And, like, you deserve resources to get those things, you know?
0: Yeah, and there's better things that we could do to an addict than murder them. Yes. um, If they happen to be someone who has hurt other
1: people in the past. Yes. Yeah, fundamentally, like, I... I've said this many times and probably on the podcast already, but you know, we talk about marginalized people all the time in the nexus. Well, there's nobody more marginalized than people who are like homeless and street involved and like in and out of jail. People who are, you know, living in abject poverty and are caught in the cycle of violence, you know, people who don't have a place to sleep and who are like having severe mental health crises all the time and are just like those people, experience violence all the time. Yes. They're definitely survivors. They were definitely abused and neglected as children. Um, they've definitely had severely traumatic things happen to them throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. They definitely are in a position to not be able to protect themselves from violence in an ongoing way due to being homeless and addicted and in a place where violence is happening all the time. Yeah. And they are simultaneously very likely to have assaulted someone. Yes. They are simultaneously very likely to be abusive in all sorts of ways. Yes. And so this like idea that we can divide like abusers and survivors into neat little categories, I don't know if I want to be this spicy about it, but like... Do it. It's kind of like a middle-class fantasy. Yes. It's a middle-class fantasy. Yeah. Because I'm like, you've never met sketchy people. Like there's people who argue with me about my pacifism by saying that like, you know, violence is just like a normal and standard part of life. And like, you know, it's, it's just a part of human behavior and we should therefore kind of accept that it has its purposes and its uses and so on and so forth. And without getting too much into my pacifism in this episode, I just want to be like, uh, how much violence do you experience in your day-to-day life, man? Honestly, how much violence do you experience in your day-to-day life? Because I went from somebody who was physically assaulted and sexually assaulted, like, minimum once a week, you know? I used to have people do shit to me all the fucking time, and now I haven't been physically assaulted in, like, 11 years, you know? Yeah. People are not assaulted at the same degrees in society, right? Right um and so like poverty and like homelessness and like addiction and like street involved shit and chaos is like a place where violence is happening all the fucking time you know um it's a place where people are very likely to be both abusers and survivors multiply mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. So when we say, like, you know, kill, rapists, assault, abusers, many of the people that we're talking about are survivors. Hmm. Like, they're survivors of, like, severe abuse, child abuse, specifically. Right. Um, Not always, but, like, very often. And so I'm honestly just not going to get behind or, like, co-sign a politics that wants to murder survivors of severe child abuse.
0: Right. Yeah. And, like, a bunch of, like, poor people who have had, like, very fucked up lives. Yeah.
1: Like, I want those people to have compassion. And so, this, like, brings me back to just, like, the abolitionism thing. Because I'm just, like, abolitionism, to me, fundamentally, is about, like, a recognition of all people's humanity. And, like, understanding that people end up in a fucked up place due to circumstances And, you know, not to say that they have no agency or no role in the choices that they make with those circumstances, but there's a lot of fucking contributing factors that lead people to do fucked up things, you know, and recognizing that like people remain human, like even if they have done fucked up things and abolitionism is about offering grace and trying to resource people rather than humiliate and punish them.
0: Yeah, exactly. I want resources and community for people who have done horrible things. Yeah. Yeah. As as counterintuitive as that seems to like many people, you know, but the question is like, yeah, like how, how do we actually make the world a less fucked up place? And I don't think that it's through the targeted assassination of like people who've broken the law.
1: Yeah. And I guess maybe one last thing I'll say about this is just that like, if you care about domestic violence survivors and child abuse survivors in particular and like very often this rhetoric is like about these types of abuse you know very very often domestic violence survivors and child abuse survivors love their perpetrators Mm. you know they know them and they love them because the um, the abuse is happening in the context of a relationship right And so like, it's actually like one of the worst things that you can do if you're trying to support someone leaving domestic violence to like totally demonize their abuser Mm. because they love their abuser. Right. Like not always, but like a large percentage of the time they at least have very complicated feelings that include love. Right. You know, because they do see more than just the abuse. They have a relationship with the person and they see the many things that there are to love about that person. Right. You know, and that's part of what makes leaving that type of abuse so hard. But I think that it's actually my experience like as a child to be survivor and a domestic violence survivor that like informs my politics on this because I know that the people who abused me are not monsters. Mm-hmm. I know that they are three-dimensional people who were doing fucked up things, you know? And so I have to hold that knowledge when I'm building my politics. I can't bring myself to dehumanize these people and to just turn them into two-dimensional caricatures because like I fundamentally know that they're not.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I don't know, I guess maybe just to like very briefly before we wrap this up, like tie it back to our fucking car. Right. Um, it's like the idea that people who you like really don't know anything about, because this is like another part of it, right? It's like honestly like one thing if, it, if it's like somebody that did something to you, you know, um, and it's like far more understandable why you would have these kind of like urges to like, you know, get retaliation or whatever. Um, even if I don't necessarily like agree with it ethically, you know, it's much more understandable. But when it's like someone who you don't even fucking know, um, you have like no way of like determining whether like, you know, allegations made against them were like real or not or whatever. And then when you like start extending this kind of politics of, of like retaliation and, and just like sort of like (laughs) random violence um, towards people who you literally just disagree with politically, you know, who like, aren't like, you know, people calling for like genocide or whatever, but they're just like us. It's like, it's like other socialists, you know, um, who you don't like. So you have decided that it's like fine for you personally to, um, enact various kinds of like violence or property destruction or whatever towards them. Um, it's like fucking really crazy, you know? Yes. Um, and again, it's like, you know, who, who put you in charge of deciding like who, who gets to speak, who gets to be speak, who, who should be like intimidated, Um, you know, who, who should be like attacked by strangers. Yes. Um, for their political views. Yes. Um, yeah.
1: And like, I think the last thing I'll say about the tire situation and the car situation, um, is just like, and I said this on Instagram already, but I'm like, really let's think about what these people did. Like they claim to be Advocating for the rights of survivors. Their whole thing is about survivors, right? Yep. They know because I'm extremely open about it that I am a survivor, that I am a survivor of all sorts of really fucked up shit. They know this. I have complex PTSD. My life has been really insane. And they chose to stalk me, find out what my fucking car looked like, drive through the streets looking for my car. And then slash my tires and pour shit onto my car. And I was just struck by the fact that these particular actions, you know, while they consider them to be like, I guess, Antifa or something, <laughs> um, are actually extremely parallel to actions that I have experienced in the context of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So, like, two things in particular one is that, like, it's a common tactic of abusers to like prevent their victims from leaving. Right. Right. And right. so like, there's all sorts of different ways that they'll do this.
0: Well, fucking up your car is definitely one of them.
1: But like locking someone in a room in like, you know, my ex would like steal my keys and my phone,
0: mm. you know? Mm.
1: So like doing things like that is a common tactic of abusers. Obviously slashing my fucking tires created a situation where like i could not move my car you know and like when i was like when you went to go and like get our friends and i decided to stay with the car because i was afraid they might still be around and might do something more to the car i like got in the car and then when our friends arrived and i like saw them kind of like in the dark yeah i like literally had like a a adrenaline dump in my body because i was like Oh my god, are these the people who like slash my tires? Right. Like coming back to like literally assault me or something, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. I'm alone in the car. Yeah. Um, wow, terrifying and threatening. Yeah. Um, what a lovely thing to do to a domestic violence survivor. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I couldn't drive away. Yeah. Because I was immobilized because my tires were slashed. Yes. And then secondly, the shit thing, literally, my abusive ex partner. Poured fucking... My therapist pointed this out to me, actually, when I was mm-hmm. talking about the tires. Mm-hmm. My abusive ex-partner poured the kitty litter, the dirty kitty litter, all over my clothes and rubbed the shit into my clothes. Um, and also, a woman who he abused after me told me that he literally took his own shit and poured it all over her stuff. Right. So, weird. But weird what is the purpose of pouring shit on somebody's stuff?
0: It's to humiliate them. It's a
1: degrading and humiliating act. Right. To degrade and to humiliate someone is abusive. Yeah. It is literally to try to make them feel like less than human, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm just pointing out that what these people did objectively, however they want to dress that up in like whatever kind of fucking ideological bullshit they want to dress it up in, is they targeted a survivor. Yeah who literally does work on ending abuse, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, they don't agree with my strategies for ending abuse, but that's what I do. Um, Stalked her and like chose acts of like property destruction that are like very in align, in alignment with like what abusers do to survivors, you know, they like slash my tires and poured shit on my car to humiliate me, degrade me and not allow me to like leave the situation yeah so cool nice politics you got there
0: yeah it's extremely extremely frustrating um that anyone thinks that that is a useful let alone commendable course of action
1: yeah and it's like look if you guys disagree with me you know if you disagree with the podcast if you disagree with the things we're saying
0: write a fucking book about it man yeah
1: write an article make a substack post you know
0: start your own fucking podcast yeah start
1: your own podcast like go ahead we're not stopping you we're certainly not going to slash your fucking tires yep so go right ahead and that was always allowed
0: that was literally always allowed
1: and uh maybe just like try to do something more productive with your time
0: yeah get your shit together (laughs) all right well that's it for today i think yeah um thanks for being with us on this journey
1: we will see you next time